Good to see you this morning. Go ahead and grab a Bible or a device with a Bible on it. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it right in the scripture. So that's why I want you to follow along with us. Now, before we get there, I want to just ask you, have you noticed how much interest there is in the end of the world? You guys ever noticed that? Um, I think you could say it like this. The end is near and it's coming to a theater near you or to a streaming service, I should say, uh, to, a, you know, to a living room close to you. So um, I was doing a little checking on this. There's close to 300 end of the world themed movies out there since the beginning of movie making. And uh, just kind of interesting when you, when you think about it, uh, over half of those movies have, made just, have been made or produced just in the last 20 years. So there's a lot of interest in the end of the world. I think a lot of people have questions about that. And uh, so there's movies like Terminator Genesis and San Andreas. And then there's Mad Max Fury Road, uh, Tomorrowland, just to name a few. And, um, and so there's just all of this interest in the end of the world. Now, uh, the first end of the world movie was made in 1916. And it was appropriately titled... The end of the world. So uh, you knew what that was all about. And so um, just so many different themes, even within this kind of genre of, of, uh, of movies. So you've got the alien apocalypse theme where aliens are coming down to the earth to take over. And, um, and so you've got several movies uh, in that genre. Then you've got the asteroid collision with the earth genre. Uh, the asteroid apocalypse genre. Uh, you see movies like Armageddon and Deep Impact kind of uh, reflect that theme. And uh, really what's been most popular over the last few years is the zombie apocalypse theme. So, um, and so, yeah, obviously there are a lot of, uh, a lot of different, a lot of interests in the end of the world. Now, here's the question, church. Let me just throw it out to you this morning. What are we to make of that? What do you think about that? Uh, it seems like, to me, from my vantage point, that uh, it could be that deep down we know history has a conclusion to it. It could be that deep down we know that the end of the story has already been written. And we know that intuitively and instinctively. And I think even with the chaos that we've seen just over the last year and a half with the pandemic, uh, with geopolitical tensions, with societal tensions, uh, with the Colts not playing that well, that kind of thing, you know. Um, we have a lot of people asking the question, are we living at the end of the world? Are we living in the end times? And what's fascinating to me is a lot of people are now looking to movies when they used to look to the church and to scripture a lot of people today are looking to movies to help them answer the question, where are we going and how do we need to prepare for that? That's a huge shift in our society that's taken place just in the last, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. And so in the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to talk a little bit about Christ's second coming, the end of the world. And uh, we're going to talk specifically about how to be ready because I think the point that the Apostle Paul is making is he's challenging us to be ready for his return. 
He is challenging us to be ready. That history as we know it does have a conclusion and the end of the story has been written and it has been determined. Now, don't take my word for it. I want you to take the word of God for it. So at face value. So I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you stand together? We're going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 this morning. So this is very much a part of the section of chapter 4 that we read last week. Uh, we're, not going to read that la- we're not going to read that again this week, but this is kind of a follow-up to it. And this is what he says. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. For those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You may be seated. All right, so this passage is really dealing with the second coming of Jesus. And Jesus came in his first coming as a servant. In his second coming, he'll be coming as king. In his first coming, he came in all humility, in weakness, and in his second coming, he'll be coming in power and in glory. He is going to break into human history at a decisive moment in time, and uh, every eye will behold it, every eye will see it. And so the question is this, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for his for his return. Now, what I want to do is just try to answer two questions because I think that's what this passage answers. I think he, I think really the first question that we, we're looking at here is this: what do we need to know about the return of Christ? What do we need we need to know about his his second coming? And then secondly, very, very simply, how do we need how do we need to prepare for it? And that's what I want us to kind of talk about today. So let's look at the first one. What do we need to know about Christ's return? Let me show you verses one through three because he starts laying out some just very practical things for us as Christians um, living today in eager expectation for his return. Notice what he says. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware because he told them when he was first meeting with them. He, they don't need to have anything written to them because he's already explained to them that, that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. That's, that's basically what, he is, what he's saying. Um, he goes on to say, well, people are saying that there is peace and security. 
then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, what I want us to notice first about this is he's talking about the second coming, but he describes it with this phrase, the day of the Lord. You guys see that? You see it in, uh, you see that I think in, in, in verse two, he talks about how this day of the Lord, this second coming is. He begins to describe it. Now, that phrase, day of the Lord, is a significant phrase because it is all over Scripture. It is prominent in the Old Testament and prominent in the New Testament. And so there are many variations of that phrase, day of the Lord. So there's the day, you see that often used. Uh, There is uh, the day of Jesus, that is used quite frequently. Uh, And then the day of the Lord is very prominent in the Old Testament. So you see this in the Old, you see this in the New. There was a given in the mind of those in the time of Jesus and before the time of Jesus. That there was going to be a day when God breaks into human history. Now, there are, when you kind of think about what the day of the Lord is, you're like, what is that? What's going to happen there? It's really just very specifically a day when God reveals his sovereignty over human powers and human existence. It's, it's like right now we accept it by faith. On that day, it will be plain to see. And uh, he will reveal it to us. And so basically that's the day of the Lord. There are two parts to the day of the Lord. The first part of it is this. It will be a moment of judgment for many. It'll be a moment when Jesus comes to judge and then it will be a moment of deliverance for many, for many others. All right, so let's, let's talk about that first one. Let's talk about that moment of judgment, that day of judgment. Now, let me just, let me just say this kind of up front, church, because you, you need to hear my heart on this. A lot of pastors will not teach on the judgment of God because it's a very difficult topic to preach and teach on. And so many pastors avoid the topic altogether. Okay, I'm not going to do that. It's a difficult topic, but we need to talk about it. And, and, and the reason why is very simply, let me just give you three reasons uh, why we need to talk about this. Number one, I've already alluded to it. It's a prominent theme in all of Scripture. It is all over the Bible. And so I want you diving into the Word of God on a regular basis. And so when you run into these themes, I want you to be equipped to understand what's going on because because that's the word of God. It's, it's, It's the truth of God. But even beyond that, I am called by God to preach the whole counsel of God. That is my calling. And so, and so... I can't just preach to you the warm, fuzzy Bible verses, you know, that that make us feel really good, right? And pastors that do that, that only do that, are not doing their congregations any good. And so what we see when Jesus came, he came in grace and in truth. He came preaching grace and the truth. And I think that needs to mark the preaching of the word today as well. That we need, we need to know what the Bible says about this. And so, and so that's a huge part of understanding who God is. That, that we need to understand those warm, fuzzy truths, but we need to understand the hard truths as well. You guys track it with me? Can I get an amen to that? All right, I was hoping you were going to say that. That's good. Um, all right, but the second reason why we need to preach on judgment is this. There are a lot of people 
where the fear of judgment is the only motivation for them. For them to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. For a lot of people, that's the only thing that's going to motivate them, the fear of future judgment. Now certainly, to be sure, there are better motivations for coming to Christ. But you know what? God is so good, he'll take whatever motivation you got if you'll just come to him in faith. And he'll turn it around and use it, use it for good. Here's the third reason why I would preach on judgment. And that is this, because the truth is this, we all have a longing for judgment. We all have a longing for justice, do we not? I mean, we live in a sin-cursed, broken, dark world. And it seems like to me there are so many men and women who, com- who just give themselves to, to unrighteousness and evil. And it just seems like they just get away with it. Am I, am I the only one that kind of senses that? You guys know what I mean? And so what that does is that gives us a longing for justice, for justice to be done. And I think of it in terms of people like Jeffrey Epstein or Harvey Weinstein or Osama bin Laden or uh, President Xi of China or Vladimir Putin in Russia. Church, there's going to be a day when they stand before God and give an account of everything they've done before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I don't know about you, but that brings me great encouragement. I mean, I, I I was reading about Joseph Stalin. Church, do you realize this? Uh, he doesn't get the attention that he, he probably should. Um, historians say he killed over 20 million people. That's the low end estimate, 20 million. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts the number closer to 40, 40 million. He reigned for 30 years as the dictator in, in the Soviet Union. Now just think about that. There's no human penalty we could impose to cover that debt. But there's one God can. Okay? Now, let's think about the country of Haiti for just a moment. We do several, we've done several mission trips to Haiti. As soon as we can, we're going to start firing those back up again. And, uh, and so, Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the, it is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Without a doubt. And what's fascinating is over the years, the United States and other countries have poured billions of dollars into this small, poverty-stricken nation. And that money, that aid money, has done nothing to lift that country out of poverty. Do you know one reason for that? Because the government leaders are so corrupt, that money never gets to help the people. They're so corrupt. Now, the truth is, The leadership class in the United States isn't much better. But I'm going to tell you the truth. There's going to be a day when they will answer for that. And they will give an account for that. And so what does the Bible say about this? Men and women are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's what the Bible says. That is the truth of the word of God. And I've already mentioned this to you. This is is so... This is really good news on multiple levels. Let me give you one practical application of this. For those of us who've been hurt and been wounded, we've been betrayed, and and those of us who are struggling with unforgiveness, we live in resentment, we we live in, 
you know, anger towards what other people have done to us and how they've hurt us. Church, the good news of the day of judgment is you don't have to live in bitterness anymore. You don't have to, you don't have to live with revenge in your heart and revenge in the back of your mind. Do you know why? Because God says, Jesus says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine so you can give it to me. You don't have to drink poison and hope it kills somebody else. God says, I will judge and I will right every wrong and, and wipe away every tear. And, and hopefully that should give you some encouragement to say, why in the world am I so angry and resentful over this? I just need to entrust them into the judgment of God. He takes care of it a lot better than we do. Now, here's the best news of all. This is, this is just really really good news. Jesus is the judge who is perfect in all of his judgments. Do you know that Jesus is the perfect judge? He never gets judgment wrong. There's never misjustice with him. There's never a hung jury with him. There's never, you know, somebody getting away, you know. He is the perfect judge. He cannot make a wrong judgment because he is perfect in all that he does. And, you know, people will ask me, they'll say, well, Pastor Scott, what about, what about the innocent person in New Guinea who's never heard the gospel? Is God going to send them to hell? You guys ever thought, you ever heard that question? Three things about that. Number one, there are no innocent people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has left himself a witness we know that he exists just by sheer creation. We know that we have a moral law written on our heart. We know it's wrong to lie, to cheat, to kill, to take advantage of those who are weaker. We know that that's wrong. That law is written on our heart. It's called a conscience. Number two, which I've already alluded to, Jesus is perfect in his judgments. He's never going to get judgment wrong. Never. He always judges perfect justice. And number three, if there's somebody in New Guinea that doesn't know the gospel, one of you needs to go to New Guinea today and share the gospel with them. That's our, that's our great commission. Now, all of that is really good news. Now, can I just ask you a question? What about you? Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for the day of judgment? Church, I'm really concerned that some of us come most Sundays and we just go through the motions. We listen to the songs, we listen to the sermon, we're out the door, and we're unchanged by the message of the gospel. And I'm concerned because that would indicate you're not ready for that day. You're not ready for the day of judgment. My job as a pastor is to get you ready to share the truth with you about that. And so all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As a pastor, I'm going to face more harsh judgment than you because I'm a preacher and teacher of God's word. So I will be held accountable at a whole different level than you, as it should be. But what about you? Now let me just read to you one passage about the judgment of God. Now, if you, if you want to read a little bit more about God's judgment in the future at the end of the world, you can go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. That chapter outlines it pretty clearly. But let me show you from Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, what this, what judgment looks like. 
Isaiah records this, wail for the day of the Lord is near. You see that phrase? The day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They, they will be like, they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. So you see Paul's picking up on some of those themes there, right? Because he, he's already used the labor metaphor and he's picking it up from Isaiah. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Now that's pretty clear. You guys tracking with that? Do you guys understand what that says? And so the question that I have is why will hands be feeble? Why, is the human, why will the human heart melt? Because of sin. Because these people on that day have been living their entire life in rebellion against God, rejecting his grace and his mercy. And so it's kind of scary language, is it not? So the question is, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? I think a lot of us, when we think of Jesus, we, we kind of picture Jesus as having blue eyes and blonde hair, and he's American looking, and he's got a nice little tan and stuff. And, uh, you know, he kind of pats us on the head and says, just try a little harder, you know, just try a little harder. And uh, we, we kind of picture him as this guy who gives us a hug and kind of cuddles us on the hard days. Um, and I think there's some truth to that, obviously. But on the day of the Lord, I, I don't think he's going to do a lot of cuddling and head patting. You guys tracking with me on that? He's going to come to judge the world. He's going to come to do away with sin and injustice. And what Paul is saying here is, are you ready? Are you ready for that? All right, so that's the bad news part of it. What about the good news part of it? The good news is, It'll also be a day of salvation. It'll be a day of deliverance. Uh, when you look at this concept of really the day of the Lord, uh, it's, a, it's, it's just the, our greatest day. If you're walking with Jesus, if you're holding on to your faith, if you're pursuing him and loving him every day, this is your day. This is the greatest day because you will see him face to face. You will be, you will be united with him tangibly, practically, and in reality. The Bible calls this the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's how amazing this is. Sin and evil and Satan are going to be done away with, and we will be his people and he will be our God. Is there any greater day than, than that? It's a day of deliverance. Now, some of you are like, I can because I can kind of hear what you're thinking. Um, pastors have that gift, you know. So uh, you're thinking, now, Scott, this seems like so science fiction. I mean, come on. I mean, you really, th I mean, this is so out of our experience. This is so beyond our experience. Are you, I mean, are you sure? Well, here's what I would say to that. Jesus was born of a virgin. That's not in the realm of my experience. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. That's certainly not in the realm of my experience. Jesus could walk on water. He could calm the wind and the waves. I don't have, that's not my experience. Jesus died. They put him in the, in the ground and he rose on the third day. I don't know about you, church. 
I don't know many people who've experienced that. That's certainly out of the realm of my experience. So I would say that Jesus' coming is certainly out of the realm of our experience, but it is certainly within the realm of Jesus' experience. Now, that's really it. It's judgment and deliverance. But let's, let's kind of unpack some of this, some of what he says more practically about his coming. He says, he says this, the concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have... You have no need for me to write anything to you. I've already kind of mentioned this because he's trying to remind them, look, we've already kind of gone over this. Uh, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there's peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains. Now, uh, what he's doing is he's using a couple of different metaphors to answer this question. I think they were asking him, Questions like we ask, are we living in the end times? What do, you know, how can we kind of discern those things? And uh, he, uses, he uses two metaphors. He uses this metaphor of a thief in the middle of the night, and he uses this metaphor of pregnancy and, and labor pains. And I think what he's trying to say is this. He's trying to say it's going to come unexpectedly, and it's going to come suddenly. I think that's what he's saying in relation to the timing. In other words, you can do some general preparations for a thief coming in the middle of the night, but you don't know exactly when that thief's going to show up. So I wouldn't recommend staying up all night every night. That would probably not be good. So, so, so that we can't know the day and time is basically his point. Now, this is, this is kind of interesting to me because people have always been very curious about knowing the specific time. Or guessing specific times. If you, you, guys, you guys follow me on this? Uh, people, even though Jesus says no man knows the day or time. Even though the Apostle Paul is saying no one knows the day or time. We still try to guess the day or time. Isn't that funny to you? I, it's funny to me. I remember when I was a senior in high school, 1988. There was a book called 88 Reasons Why the Return is in 1988. It was flying off the shelves in 1986, 87, 88. It slowed down in 1989 and 90. And all I heard was, the guy has great reasons. I mean, he has great reasons. And he called it. I mean, he went out on the limb and called it. Even though no one knows the date or time. Isn't that interesting? And then in, just in recent history, May 21st, 2011, that was the day that Harold Camping predicted that Jesus would return. He was an evangelist and talk radio personality. He was very famous up until May 22nd. So, um, and I don't get it. I don't understand why people do this when what, what we find from Scripture is that's not how it works. We, we're not going to know the day or the time. And so it's going to be suddenly and unexpectedly like labor pains, like a thief in the night. And so the question is this, are you ready? That's the question. Now I love uh, what he's talking about here because the Apostle Paul mentions, you know, people are going to be saying everything's good. Everything's, you know, there's peace and security in the world. Everything's good. Just relax. And, um, commentators were saying that was one of the slogans 
often used by the emperor of Rome and by the Roman officials and the different provinces, just calming the people down and basically asking them, put your trust in Rome, we'll take care of you. You don't have to worry about your future peace and security for everybody. Now, I would just say, you don't need to put your trust in the government. You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And so, and so, a lot of people will do it, but it is not the admonition, not the encouragement that we, that we have here. The day of the Lord will be a day of great joy and peace for those that are walking with the Lord today and trusting in him today, who've, who've trusted in him to be, his, to be their substitute uh, for their sins. That, that's, that's the way. That's who you need to be trusting in is Jesus Christ. All right, so... So that's just kind of what he shares here, what he unpacks with them. I, I know that you probably love for me to kind of make some predictions and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. So, all right, so how do we prepare practically, all right? Let me give you two ways that we need to prepare practically. This is just right out of the scripture. Number one, if we're going to face the future without fear, if we're going to face the return of Jesus with great joy, number one, I need to embrace my identity, I need to embrace my identity. You need to remember who you are. And I don't know if you noticed this, but all throughout Scripture, Scripture is always calling us back to remember who you are. In the Old Testament, God is calling, you are my chosen people. You are my people. That's what he says to the people of Israel. In the New Testament, we've got all these metaphors that really describe us as sons and daughters of God. Remember who you are. And we're always brought back to this identity statement. Let me show it to you in verse 4. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief in the, like, like a thief in the night. For you, for you are all children of light. You are all children of day, he says. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And then later on in, in, in verse, verse 8, he doubles down on it again and says, you belong to the day. Those are identity statements. And, and what he's really alluding to here is we need to understand who we are because understanding who we are is crucial to living the life that God has called us to live. That, that meditating on and thinking about how the scripture describes us as people, as God's people, as God's sons and daughters, as children of light, children of the day. We need to, we need to apply that and internalize that and live by it. You know, my favorite uh, series of movies, I'd have to say, is the, Bourne, the Jason Bourne series. I, I love Jason Bourne. I love when these Bourne Identity, the Bourne Ultimatum. Or on, I always clicking through the channel, and man, when I see him, I always camp right there. I love that. I love the. I love this the story. If you know anything about Jason Bourne, he's a CIA agent who has amnesia, and his problem is he cannot remember who he is. He doesn't know what city he is in. He doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing. He doesn't know where he's supposed to be. Uh, he doesn't know any of that. And the series of movies is the painful story of him trying to figure this out and live the life that, that he has always wanted. 
And, and so the implication of this is freedom comes when we realize who we are. And so when you became a Christian, when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were born again. The grace of God, the Spirit of God worked in you in such a way, changed you from the inside. It didn't make you perfect, but it awakened you to the Spirit of God so that now you can experience the presence of God and obey the commandments of God because now you're empowered through the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, you were not just born again, you were transferred from darkness to light. You, you were transferred from being an orphan to being a child of God. So, so many things happen to you and the scripture communicates these identity statements because, because the writers of scripture understand we've got to lean into those because those, those really describe who we are. And so, it's interesting today, it's all about identity politics, isn't it? It's all about identifying with this group or that group and it's almost like what's happening in our society is we're being told we need to hate the other groups that we're not a part of. And the number one question today, what's your identity? And I'm just here to say that as believers in Jesus Christ, the world's identity markers do not define you or me. We are children of the day. The gospel defines our identity. Can I get an amen to that? And so we need to live above that garbage. We need to live above it and lean into who we are as king's kids because that is what the apostle Paul is saying. Let me show you John chapter 8 verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if you're in Christ, guess what? You are the light of the world too. And so we are children of day. We are children of the light. That's what he says. And so, so living, living and facing the future without fear just means dialing into, this is who I am. I'm a child of God. We are children of the day. And that just brings hope and joy and freedom. That's the first thing we need to do. Secondly, we need to focus on eternity. We need to focus on eternity. I think, I think what Paul is really trying to say is this, because of the fact of Jesus coming one day, it needs to impact how we live every day. So very practically, if we lean into the truth and the reality that there's going to be a day of the Lord, our faith in that should change and impact how we live every day. We should walk out of that door every week different because we know Jesus is coming. We know justice is coming. We know grace is available. We know he's going to make all things right. And, and we need to live in light of that. Let me show you this. Look how he describes this. Look at verse 6. He says, so then... Because you're children of the day, right? Because you're children of, of light. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And then later on in verse 7, he brings the word drunkenness or, or let us not be drunk 
in there. So, so what he's doing is this. He's using this metaphor of being awake and sober, and he's contrasting that with being asleep and drunk. Do you, get, you see that? You see what he's doing there? So, so he's using these metaphors, and he's contrasting the two. And so he's challenging us, I want you to be awake, and I want you to be sober. Now, let's talk about being awake. When he's talking about being awake, I think he's really alluding to our perception of reality. Because think about it. When you're sleeping, you're not aware of reality because you're asleep. And praise God, <laughs> you know, if you get a chance to sleep. So, uh, so, yeah. So he says, spiritually, I want you to be awake. I want you to be aware. Because when you are awake, typically you are aware. I want you to stay awake. Now, a lot of times, it's easy for us to do this as Christians. It's easy to kind of just slip into uh, cruise control spiritually. We just kind of coast. We just kind of just get apathetic. Uh, we get, you know, just kind of trying to just straddle the fence and our relationship with God and, you know, our relationship with the world. We just kind of, we just kind of put it on cruise control. And there's this gravitational pull to just take the easy, comfortable route and to sleep. It's easy to do. It's in me. It's in you. I remember when I was a college student, I'm, I'm originally from South Alabama. I went to school at Asbury University in Kentucky. I had a 10-hour drive one way several times a year. And I mean, you should see me trying to stay awake after a long week of exams. You know, it's 15 degrees outside. I'm rolling the windows down just to bring the cold air in. I'm turning my stereo up loud. I got a cup of coffee. I'm doing all of those things to stay alert. And I think that's what he's saying. That we need to work at, take those steps of staying awake, watchful, being ready for his return. And so, and so... That's, that's the first part of that. And then, and then secondly, he's talking about sober versus drunkenness. Now, when I, when I think about that, I think about really when you're drunk or you're high on something, you're not in control. You are out of control. You're, you're intoxicated. You know, you're, you're inebriated, basically. And so your inhibitions drop, your judgment is gone, and you have no control. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is that has no place. That has no place spiritually in our relationship with God. He says, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, let the Spirit of God live in you and help you live in self-control and be alert. So I think, I think that's what he's alluding to here is choosing to be awake and choosing to be sober as opposed to being asleep and being drunk. Now, all of that is really just simply what he's saying right here in this passage. That if we embrace our identity and we lean in and focus on eternity, we're going to be looking forward to that day. We're going to be anticipating it. It's not going to come as a shock to us because we're waiting and looking every single day in our lives. And we're living for him and he's preparing us for it. Now, here's, here's really the reason why you don't have to fear that day as a Christian and it's this, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, and I'm going to close with it today. The reason why we don't have to fear Jesus' second coming and all the circumstances around that is because his first coming. We don't have to fear the second coming 
We don't have to fear judgment because of his first coming. His first coming, he came as a servant. He came to die. He came to take our judgment for us. He came to take our punishment. And so we don't have to live in fear of the future because of what Jesus has done in the past. He loves you so much. He came and he, and he took your sins upon himself so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have the spirit of God and be born again and experience adoption and transfer and forgiveness and justification in him. That's the basis of our confidence. So that means we can lean into our identity we can focus on eternity and make a difference here and now. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying in this passage. This is how we need to be living today. Everybody get it? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you glory and honor we long for your return. We long for justice because we are people of grace. We long for the curse of sin to be lifted off this world. We long for there to be no more death, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more injustice, no more, no more death. So God, thank you that you've written the end of the story, that history does have a conclusion, that our choices today matter, that our lives matter, our relationships matter today. How we live matters. So God, I pray that by your grace and through the power of your spirit, we would walk out of the doors today renewed, awakened, revived through the power of your spirit today. That we would know that you reign sovereignly over human existence and human powers. And what is out of our experience is certainly well within the realm of your experience. And so God, help us to be people of the promise, people looking, looking to the sky always. And so God, would you do that work in us today? I just want to give you an opportunity. If you've been walking in apathy, you've just kind of been living in spiritual mediocrity, I want to just call you to confess that to God. Just own that with him and to lay it at his feet ask for his grace, his mercy. The good news is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's great news today. That is your promise today. So if you need to take a moment and confess that, do it now. not a Christian and you would like to be it's very simple just admit that you need a savior 
believe that Jesus died for your sins in your place. Commit your life to him. And I would love to lead you in a prayer for that right now. So Lord Jesus, we come before you to take away the the fear of death. We come before you to replace it with eager hope and anticipation of your return. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for dying for me so that I could have new life. I believe in you and I commit my life to you now. Put your spirit in me that I may follow you all the days of my life. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.